Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host, Jack Perks, and today I'm talking to wildlife broadcaster and zoologist Lizzie Daly. But before that, we're going to cover some of the news. Now, I thought I'd try and pick something a bit more positive because I've been having a lot of negative news stories recently. So over in Africa, there's some hope for one of the world's most endangered animals, the black rhino. It was recently announced that numbers of these incredible creatures are slowly but surely on the rise. In 2012, the black rhino population was at just over 4,800. However, due to the efforts of relocating groups and the clampdown on poachers, that number has rose to around 5,500 in 2018. This annual increase of 2.5% over six years may feel like slow progress, but it's a progress nonetheless. A conservation story certainly worth smiling about. So that's great to see them. Rhinos are slow breeders, so that doesn't sound great, but it is a huge effort and they are increasing. So hopefully they can get up in numbers. Now that brings me to someone who has visited Africa, not for rhinos, but for elephants. And that is Lizzie Daly. She is a wildlife broadcaster and zoologist who studied at the University of Exeter. And this is our chat, a little bit about her career, some of the incredibly interesting work that she's done, and also some of the more challenging issues like seal calls and salmon farms. So here's our chat. Well, Lizzie, thanks for joining me. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you for having me. No, no, no problem at all. So I think we should probably start at the beginning. So where did your career start? And have you always wanted to be a presenter? Because some people, it's like a, a lifelong dream from their kid. Other people, people, other people kind of fumble into this job. So where, where did it all kind of start for you? Well, it began really in terms of the TV side of things and presenting. I was quite regularly heading out anyway and just kind of really interested in whatever was around me. It could literally just be me sat on the Cornish coast where I was based for a few years and you know just seeing a seal pop up and for whatever reason I just really enjoyed sharing those stories so I, I actually got one of those really rubbish like flip cameras remember remember those and it's just like it's like this like brick but then you could just like flip it around and I just started talking to camera because no one else was there to help me film or tell that story and I just did that all the time and then just started to upload stuff on YouTube so the goal of being a presenter perhaps wasn't it's never really been I want to be a presenter it's more that I feel really passionate about telling these stories sharing these stories and it's just a really good tool to do that and I know that sounds like a bit of a cliche answer but it's totally true because you know I don't consider myself just a presenter I you know in this industry you have to really love what you do love what you talk about and your role i guess is multifaceted because of that so you know i do talks and i love doing educational resources and i do a bit of uh, outreach and teaching at swansea university um so presenting is great it's a really great way of reaching big audiences about really great stories you're passionate about but it's never really been a, a, a main goal of mine <laughs> It's interesting you say that because I've you know talked to a few people doing this podcast now and uh, some of the guys who work in and girls who work in television say the same thing that you've got to have lots of feathers to your cap like it's great doing the TV work but you've got it doesn't it's not constant not for everyone anyway so you've got to have lots of different things to, to keep you busy with it all. Is it important to do personal projects then because you seem really busy you're always you're always popping <laughs> up somewhere whether it's your your YouTube live series or all the other things that you do. But do you find time to do your own things? 
Yeah, so I mean, they are my own things, really. It's just if if, if I'm not working, if I don't have like a, a something I'm filming on, I will just <laughs> come up with some weird idea and try and turn it into something fun and engaging. And obviously, nature or science related, it's just it's literally what I love. Um, so yeah, I think personal projects are super important uh, for anyone. I get asked all the time, you know, how do you get into it? And I, I would never ever say it's a case of you you know one minute you're not in it and then the next minute you are sorry so <laughs> i should have said at the beginning yeah we, no, we... well you think that no i'm so sorry <laughs> no worries. but it's about building up uh you know if you want to get into the presenting or filmmaking side it's about building up your experiences and, and understanding what you're passionate about talking about and the way i've the way i've done that is by just doing it you know that for example beginning of lockdown with the earth live lessons um for me i was thinking gosh it's going to be a, a few months of people home with their kids i am going to struggle myself because there's not going to be any work tv wise but actually how can we still make sure that everyone is still feeling engaged or learning or whatever so the earth live lessons series is a anyone who doesn't uh, probably many of you haven't seen it but if you have there's plenty online uh, it's a 20 minute daily live lesson with scientists and amazing speakers from all over. We should have had you on actually, uh, Jack. We'll have to go back and start, start it again. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not too offended. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm holding that for future now. I'm going to hold you to it. But yeah, it's, uh, it, th that was really just me thinking, right, you know, I, I want to do this, so let's just do it. And it's something that I keep threaded throughout my career. And actually by doing personal projects, it does lead to things excitingly has uh, just come up i'm going to be doing a short series for nat geo on their youtube channel and that came about because of the earth live lessons so you you never know what your own projects and your own bits and bobs will lead to and i'm i'm sure it's the same for you right with your photographing all of the freshwater fish species like what a project yeah because that no one yeah that no one said jack can you do that it was just sort of yeah i thought well why not no one else had done it and fish are a because obviously you do a lot of marine stuff yourself, so fish are kind of the underdog. So I thought, well, let's try and push them a little bit. And that sort of propelled my career a little bit. So yeah, but I, I definitely agree with you. Personal projects are hugely important. And mm. Yeah, and they do, can often lead to, to work. Because you, didn't you, do I remember correctly, you did some stuff with the, the Falmouth Springwatch thing. Not, I was going to say knockoff, yeah. that's really ungenerous way to no, describe it. No, it, it, it was. It was Nature Watch. <laughs> I mean... How similar can you get? You didn't get a lawsuit or anything. I'm surprised Springwatch <laughs> didn't. <laughs> no, apparently at the time, because oh God, it was ages ago now, apparently at the time Springwatch heard of us and they had a little bit of a chuckle. They were like, that's great. <laughs> but don't come too close to us. <laughs> yeah, I think they do. I was chatting to Billy Heaney the other day and he was yeah. saying that they do kind of, some of the producers eye it over. So I think they keep tabs on it. And I, I think they seem to poach some of the content, uh, not content, sorry, some of the people who work on it. Because I've seen people who have gone on to actually work on Spring Watch after. So again, that's sure. just something you guys were doing off your backs, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, myself, Peter Cooper and Ethan Rigglesworth with the first three. And of course, the amazing team, you know, like Russell Barnett and all the team behind it, just basically finding stories in Cornwall that we liked and making a bit of a series about it. Brilliant. It's, um, I, th I think if you've got that drive, passion and motivation to just do that anyway, then that can't be a bad thing. <laughs> No, definitely, yeah. definitely. And I don't know if it's classed as a personal project, because I think you're doing this as a, as a study, but you, you're working with human conflict and elephants, is that right? 
Yeah, so it's based at Swansea, yes, for my PhD. Um, yeah, so a bit, more, bit more than a personal <laughs> project. I think that's probably a bit unfair. <laughs> well, yeah, you could say it's a personal project. Yeah. So it's uh, my PhD at Swansea University. And um, uh, in 2018, I actually went out to, to Kenya because it's an issue that I feel quite passionately about. But I think if you're going to really understand it, you have to see it and you know be, be on the ground and really realise what the realities of these issues are. And so I, I was there for a few months um, following a great organisation called Space for Giants. And in that time, I, write, I wrote a PhD proposal and kind of got together some ideas on, on what, I, what I wanted to focus on. But in the same in the same space, I actually, actually got to see what it was like in the, the majority of the conflicts between humans and elephants in that region is from crop raiding as opposed to poaching. A place called Lycipia, it's and in Nanuki where I was, was a few hours south of Nairobi. And there just seems to be a high population of elephants as well as a growing population of, of people. And these people's um, you know, farmland and houses and um, communities back onto the same habitat as these elephants that, that roam within this now fragmented space. So this conflict for some is like a daily occurrence. Yeah, and it's becoming a, a big, big issue. So it's kind of a long term goal for me to actually focus on using my uh, research focus, which is looking at animal movements and identifying state from gate um, and then applying that to, to human and elephant conflict or elephants specifically in the field. I'm currently looking at some other, other data on penguins at the moment, which is really exciting, but nothing to do with, <laughs> nothing to do with elephants currently. Um, but for me, you know, I've always been passionate about elephants, always, always. And, you know, if you're going to be passionate about such a charismatic species, really you need to get to the root of some of the biggest issues that these, these animals are facing and, Conflict with people is a is a big global story across lots of different species and interactions, but for elephants specifically, it's a big one. So, yeah, that's that's also part time. <laughs> yeah, well, very yeah. You seem to be kind of keep juggling plates with all this stuff. It's great. With um, I mean, you think in the UK, the worst we get is maybe rabbits nibbling someone's lettuce or whatever. So it's a big difference. It's kind of hard to fathom that you've got these elephants nicking their crops and. I mean, yeah, I'm sure that PhD is very complicated, but it's not a simple solution to fix, is it? I wouldn't, I wouldn't know where to start. You know? No, 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 exactly. Um, I actually was reading a really interesting paper yesterday that just came out where they're using um, bright, like disco lights, certain, oh, right. certain strobes. Yeah, there's a brand new kind of mitigation method. Okay. Um, strobe lights of different colours around farms can help deter elephants from from crops. Get some BGs <laughs> on there as well, or something, just to yes. sort of, you know. <laughs> Jazz it up. <laughs> yeah, why not? So as well as the PhD, as well as the presenting, you do some hosting as well. And I wanted to know what it was like hosting the Panda Awards. So if anyone's not familiar with that, it's kind of like the Wildlife Oscars is probably the fair, fair way to <laughs> describe it. So what was that like? Oh, an unreal experience. It was such an honour. It really was an honour to be part of it. There's, I think there's many different components. It was good to see like behind the scenes and what the build up to the actual Panda Awards itself. The whole thing was choreographed. It was a 360 stage. Uh, I was co-hosting, so I was also with Lewis Pugh, fantastic conservationist. Um, he's, he's brilliant. And uh, yeah, it was just incredible. Because on one hand, you're, you're standing in front of possibly people who are you would like to hire you in the future. Yeah. <laughs> so no pressure. But also on the other hand, I think what, what made it so enjoyable was that it's an evening which just actually, it, it kind of comes back to the, 
tool use of being a presenter. It's not about you presenting on stage. I obviously was so nervous, but it's more about the people who are getting the awards and just being part of that, I think was such an experience. I've never been part of such a big celebratory evening in that, in that way in a world that I'm so involved in. So actually it was a bit, yeah, it was so humbling. And um, yeah, one gentleman, Vienna, who um, got an award for his film, My Congo, beautiful film. And I, I knew beforehand that he was getting an award and I was so excited. It's like, Vienna! I was just like trying to like hold back my excitement. So it was a real kind of mix of trying to keep it professional and keep cool, but also just having a great time. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it seems like a fantastic, fantastic experience. Now, you, you obviously travel around, you've said you've been to Africa for Elephants, but you're very passionate about whales, uh, the country, I should just say. You're probably passionate about whales, the animals as well, <laughs> but uh, particularly Skoma. So why is Skoma such a special place? Yes. So I, I should say that um, kind of this real push uh, for um, interest around Skoma this year is largely because of many of our organisations and charities are hit, being hit massively because of COVID. But I mean, before that, the uh, year before last I was running trips to Skoma Island because it is just a little wonderland off of Wales for anyone who doesn't know it's, it's, it's this wild island just slightly offshore from, from, Pembroke, from the Pembrokeshire coast and in the breeding season from about April to about end of July, August time, even in August you get Manx Shearwaters but it is just alive with wildlife and we're talking you know the world's biggest colonies of, of Manx Shearwaters and then you have thousands of puffins and um, of course, the, the migrants that arrive on the island, you've also got shorted owls in unprecedented numbers. I could go on for hours about Skoma. It is just a really magical place. I'm pretty sure, well, you've been around Skoma Island, right? But how many times have you been on it? I've been, yeah, because normally I'm bobbing around just off Skoma. So technically, <laughs> With the puffins. yeah, technically I've only been there once, but I've dived around it and I've done some shoots with puffins underwater around it. So yeah, it, it's, a, it's a phenomenal place when you get it on the right conditions. One of the troubles I had there was that, because they like to go in the little uh, bays, they, they poo a lot. So the water gets like they a kind of cloudy colour. So if you get the right day, it's <laughs> not a problem. But often you're just sitting in, in puffin shit, which isn't you know, yeah, not exactly yeah, yeah. what I dream for my career. But I <laughs> get on with it. But, well, something really interesting, actually, we did uh, something on the Scoba Live series that we're running at the moment. And apparently the guano that runs off the wick that kind of drops onto the, the all the coral underneath that amazing kind of room conservation zone just underneath comes alive with enemies and all different things because of the guano because of all the nutrients in the guano so shit can be good and also bad for filming <laughs> ah, so it's all linked then because i guess then that must help the sand eels because there's plankton and stuff for them to eat so it's all lying circle of life it's all linked. Meanwhile, you're bobbing up and down with a yeah. puffin decoy on your head. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I fully admit, I didn't come up with that. I nicked that idea. Well, I say nicked, I went with David Miller, who's an artist. I don't know if you've come across him. He's a fantastic wildlife artist in Wales. And I think he was the one who came up with it. But then everyone's kind of come up with their own little version. I've seen some people use like uh, fluffy toys on their heads. And it really works, <laughs> though. It, it sounds bomb. It? Put a fake puffin on your head or, or next to you. But it, they, they love it. They come in to investigate, you know. Yeah, I, um, I have spent a bit of water, um, time in the water around Skoma. And it's hard not to just kind of get lost in what's happening underneath, underneath that surface. It's a whole other world, isn't it? And just seeing them 
move so elegantly and, and dive in that way is just awesome. It's a real experience. When you compare them to on land as well, because on land they're sort of, you know, bumbling and a little bit all over the place, but under the water, you know, so quick and zipping around, it's just, it's just incredible. Yeah, it really it is, really. yeah. You've tackled some, some pretty difficult issues, which I quite admire about you. So, for example, the seal calls in Scotland and salmon farming, something I'm particularly close to. So mm. do you feel that more people need to tell these stories? So I guess it's easy to just show, you know, the pretty fox and the bluebells or whatever, but there are these very harsh realities that need, need telling. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, to be honest, I'd like to do more of it now. The salmon farming story and the shooting of seal story at salmon farms is a big, is a big one. And it kind of has just evolved now at looking at the whole industry itself, which is, again, that's, you can't not look at the whole industry when you're covering one issue because it's all linked. Um, and it's linked to every single one of us, not just, you know, for people in Scotland. Yeah, we need, we need it now. I think people are also becoming a bit more savvy. They're just, they're just a bit, they're just a bit overseeing all the same beauty and yeah, the, the, the same great natural history stories of which they, there's space for that to be told, you know, especially with our big landmark series and things. We're still finding new ways and how to document behaviours and finding new species even is still so much to explore but I think the way that you tell stories and the, the place that you tell it so for online in particular it's such a great platform to get a, a real story out and actually maybe change that into becoming you know a, a positive a positive difference whether it be a change in legis legislation or a greater awareness of an issue um I, I certainly find myself sometimes wanting to tell a story and then actually not because it's like it's kind of been done before or it's a story which perhaps we, do, we don't need those stories right now what we need is uh, is a change in attitude or, or change in awareness of the of the right ones for sure it's interesting um, you mentioned the landmarks. Yeah. They, they definitely seem to be switching on a little bit. There was, I can't, I think it was One Planet on Netflix or one of them, where the, the walrus, where they were kind of, because of the, the rising yeah. sea levels, they're all going on the rocks and falling down. And it's quite, quite gut-wrenching to watch that, but mm. it's what's happening. Yeah, it's just super powerful. You know, you still see that clip um, going round and round. And obviously it went, it went viral. It's really, really powerful. And that's, I guess that's the beauty of, you know what you do and what I do using that that film and photography to tell stories and tell those important stories and get the right attention of the right people but but it, I do think it's it's more than that because what you don't want to do is tell people how miserable everything is which <laughs> which it is let's be honest in, yeah. in many cases it can just be a really tricky story unless you really think about what kind of next step or, or positive action people can take so for example with my this is a real struggle for me telling the story about the shooting of seals at salmon farms because for me I don't believe that we need to be shooting seals at salmon farms the one thing I always hear coming back to that is we have you know uh, exponential growth in our grey seal populations around our coast well that is true this isn't talking about seal culling this is a very different issue which is that salmon farms see it um, necessary to shoot seals because they are eating their, their products when there are non-lethal alternatives which are just as effective in some cases a lot more expensive but in others not not so much I just think for a billion pound industry it's not hard to rethink how you farm and that's not just for shooting seals but in terms of the biomass of salmon you have the environmental impacts underneath the salmon pen 
etc etc I could go on for hours but anyway it's it's all encompassing and making a film about this was not for me to go salmon farmers you are the worst people like look how bad they are it's going hey this really sucks like I don't think this should be um this should be allowed why are we licensing seals to be shot why do we have seals washing up that have haven't been um accounted for and still to this day are not accounted for well let's think of ways that we can all work together to create an industry where actually you don't need to shoot seals and and there's positive outcomes as opposed to just vilifying the industry that yeah gosh you've got me on a bit of a ramble now but <laughs> <laughs> well, you need to create that dialogue don't you there's i mean it's all very well saying these people are, are really bad but then they're not going to want to work with you are they so you, to, to affect exactly. change you've got to, you've got to talk to people exactly yeah opening that conversation is really important the thing that unfortunately it always falls back on is the lack of transparency in these industries which are worth so much money and of course they're there to make money so that's where that kind of breaking not trust but breaking communication comes and therefore you have kind of head-on battles between those conservationists and industries like the salmon farming industry it's tricky yeah no definitely i, I went to shetland uh oh, when did it been about three or four years ago now and you see the salmon pens everywhere don't you in, in a lot of these little yeah. locks and I was dying to get in one and I, I tried to message a few like oh do you mind if I come in just in it not no agenda I just wanted to go in one see what it was like and just no no way they were like we're not letting you in really like, and yeah just, I, I, I guess I don't know whether it's a guilty conscience or what but the salmon didn't look because I've seen some undercover stuff and the salmon look around you know they're like sores all over them full of sea life I'm not saying all salmon farms are like that but um, they didn't want yeah. anyone with a camera going anywhere near it no exactly and it, it's just if if you think about it you know, it must be quite hard to create an environment where you have thousands of salmon within one massive cage. And, and yes, ultimately, if you're going to do that, and if I'm trying to think now, I'm trying to think as a salmon farmer, you want to produce a healthy salmon that's, that's big, it's healthy, blah, blah, blah. How do you do that? Because in nature, where they have these huge, you know, they migrate over huge distances, they have access to all these wonderful environments and food and whatever, you cannot replicate that in one cage with, no. you know, on a big scale, on that scale. So, so to actually say that you are doing that is just unrealistic on every, on every kind of element, every part of it. I don't know, I don't know how they, they can justify it. But, uh, yeah, it, it is bonkers. And there are alternatives. So I, I don't eat salmon anymore, but I do eat trout because you can farm trout in freshwater and it's a lot, you know, it negates a lot of the issues. And to be honest, sure. if you, you eat smoked trout, smoked salmon, it's... It, very, you put it there on a plate. I, I challenge some people to tell the difference. You know, it's uh, yeah, yeah, strange, yeah. Strange no, that's industry. true. Yeah. Out of interest, have you have you read much about um, land-based farming of salmon? You know, in these big. Now it is funny you mention that because I saw a post yesterday, and somewhere in America they've successfully. I want to say Minnesota, but that sounds a bit too far inland. But somewhere mm. in America, anyway, they've raised Atlantic salmon to adulthood. And they found a cost-effective way of doing that. Right. Uh, it's the first time it's been done. So I'll try and dig out the article for you if I can. Mm. But because I think that's what's stopping it at the minute is that it's just too expensive. It's doable, but it would it would cost too much. But they found a way around that now. So hopefully that might uh, make a bit of a, a bit of a change. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting one. It's again one that keeps popping up, and I'm I don't know where I am with it just because. It's just, it's, oh, I don't know. I guess I have a bad experience with some conversations I've had with those in the industry and I just feel like they can find any alternative to, to kind of move it away from the fact that the current 
farming practice isn't the best, then, then they will. But I mean, I say they, there's lovely salmon farmers and there's really great companies that are trying to better how they farm, but we've got a lot of work to do for sure. Yes. Yeah. So you've, you've traveled all over the world and obviously extensively across uh, Wales and the rest of Britain. So is there a, a wildlife encounter that stands out for you? I'm sure there's many, but is there one that's like, that was incredible? In Wales or just? We'll go, you, we'll go for the rest of the UK. We're not limited to Wales. Yeah, rest of the UK. Do you know one thing I really loved doing was uh, a few years ago, we did a video on um, lampreys up in okay. Ireland. Yeah. I can get behind that. That's good. I loved, I absolutely loved it. This like prehistoric creature. We went to the River Shannon. And it was just a really great day. We found this fantastic beautiful big male just literally as we were kind of wading through all of these weeds and everything it was just absolutely brilliant i think for me that was you know sometimes with documentaries and things you have to kind of make sure you get the story and get get get, get the right shots by I, I don't know just trying to maybe go into a museum or thinking of creative ways to actually get a good shot of of of, of a species and this was my first lamprey i'd ever seen um in wild and it was just magnificent like we got everything we needed in that day and the sun was shining and it was raining and i was with a great team and oh it was awesome <laughs> they are they're incredible creatures i mean i i think i'm right said about 300 million years old or something like that i mean they're so primitive they don't even have a jaw so they're just, just incredible but was was that with yeah. um i forget his name is it ecofact the guy who runs yes it? ecofact yeah yes oh uh what was his name he was really great um Oh, that's really going to bug me. I see. I, I only know him as I don't know. His, I only know his Ecofax. I see it pop up on Twitter, mm. but he does a lot of lamprey stuff. Um, some really nice stuff as well. But but sea lamprey are great yeah. because they just they just sit there. Once they're on the red, like, out of all the fish, they're difficult to find. But once you find them, they just mm. sit there. And you know, I, I found some on the uh, River Test a few years ago and couldn't. I thought, I'm going to try and pick one up. Why not? And just grab. And it just kind of sat there in my hands. I was like, this is amazing. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, just There's incredible. a yeah there's a place not far from here actually and somewhere in mid wales where they all pass through in in kind of late april um early may i think um and it's apparently you can stand on the bridge and just kind of watch hundreds of them oh really um, okay. i wanted to go this year but lockdown yeah <laughs> not, not the year for it but they are yeah i think they are they are in a few welsh rivers but they're they're a weird one because they're not really common anywhere but they just turn up in and little bits. Yeah. I always keep an eye out if I ever see a documentary on basking sharks because there's nearly always a sea lamprey attached to one if you watch them. I don't know why yeah. they like basking sharks so much, but <laughs> yeah. there's a photo of yours or an experience of yours that went viral last year, wasn't there? Was it last year? I think it was. Yes, yeah, it was last year. Yeah. yeah. The barrel jellyfish. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, basically, it was part of a, funny enough, a personal project. Uh, I wanted to um, do like a, basically show how brilliant the UK can be. And lots of people, I think, overlook how kind of, you know, shocking the UK can be in terms of like having great encounters and having lots of them in a short space of time. So over a week, uh, myself and my, my friend and camera op Dan also known as Sharkman Dan we kind of did around the UK and we saw you know 11 breaches of minke whale and we swam with grey seals and we you know were, watched pods of demi-resident bottlenose dolphins and explored the coast and saw seabirds and gannets and all the rest of it and yeah it finished in Cornwall where we did this dive and we were meant to go see blue sharks didn't happen too windy so I thought that's it it's the end of the week and we we kind of put on our dive gear and just went for a very small coastal dive in Falmouth 
Christmas. I just came across this really enormous barrel jellyfish and it was the biggest one I'd ever seen. The funny thing with that story is that, thank goodness, <laughs> the reality of what happened that day never actually also went viral, which was that my mask was not working. It was like in the pictures, I'm holding my mask because basically it's like this full of water. I oh, can't no. really see. <laughs> I dropped a GoPro, which was Dan's girlfriend's GoPro, and then he found it again. It was just like a big mess, and then all of a sudden this beautiful barrel jellyfish just appeared. And we spent just about, I think it's about an hour with, with it, just kind of floating around it. And it was, it was obviously moving along the coastline, feeding for plankton. Absolutely awesome. And um, for whatever reason, the internet just loved it. Yeah, it was just... They, they're, not, they're not venomous, are they, barrels? Or are they? No, no. I mean, this... The sting is like so mild, you, you, you really wouldn't wouldn't feel it. But um, yeah, they're, they're, they're the UK's largest jellyfish. They're just lovely. And right now is a great time to see jellyfish. So if you're on the beach, go out and see if you can ID some jellies. <laughs> it definitely, I think it surprises people because they don't realise what's in our seas. And I think that's great about the work that you do because you're revealing that. But I, I, weirdly enough, the only barrel jellyfish I've ever seen was at Pembrokeshire uh, near Scoma. Like the, you can die from the shore on, on the Pembrokeshire side, I think, and I did a little shore dive around there and I saw a barrel and I was just like, what the fuck is this? It's yeah. enormous. It was so big. It's yeah. absolutely incredible. But yeah, I didn't know they yeah. didn't sting, so I kind of kept kept back a little bit, but they are, yeah. they're bonkers. They're crazy. Yeah. yeah, and I, honestly, I'm constantly amazed. Like I've been in Pembrokeshire, it was a few years ago, just sat, um, sat on the sea wall and you see the, you know, the bioluminescence of plankton regularly in all along the coast of Wales. It's a beautiful place. Uh, recent, what was it, December, we found, uh, unfortunately, it had passed away, but it was a Kemp's Ridley turtle just washed oh. up on the beach of Swansea. Yeah, but there's just so many interesting finds um, on our coast. And I, I, I do think, you know, we, we haven't even really scratched the surface, but no. this is why I, I love to champion Wales. We just happen to be in a really great place <laughs> in terms of like, bringing in or, or seeing lots of that fantastic wildlife basking sharks and, and jellyfish blooms and all the rest of it. It's I'd really love to see the, well, the two things that you get off the Celtic deep, so the, the loggerhead turtles, I'd love to see one of those in the UK. I think I'd be very lucky. But the one I've probably got more chance of, the tuna. I'm sure you're aware of the, yes. aware of the tuna. I am aware of it. Um, isn't it down in Cornwall, uh, University of Exeter, they do some research on... I, I'm actually, there. I'm interviewing... Tom Horton, the guy who runs that project, uh, yes. next week. So I am going to have oh, a chat fun. with him about that more in depth. But I, I, it's one of my bucket list animals. I'd love to see tuna in the UK. Oh, that would be amazing. I don't even know how he goes about seeing tuna. Like, where do you start? I, I think he, they look for the bait balls. So they look for the birds kind of going sure. down and then they just assume. I mean, to be fair, they're like 800 pounds. If they're breaching, you're going you're gonna to yeah. notice them. But I mean, I, yeah. I'm not my tuna looking experience is pretty limited but i suppose yeah. if it's a flat calm day and you see them breaching you're gonna you're gonna spot well, you're them gonna i'm sure there's a lot that. more to it than that <laughs> yeah i mean i've chatted to a few of the fishermen down on Pembrokeshire coast you know they spend hours out on the water and they see tuna all the time but it's just yeah the thought of actually seeing that would just be a bit mind-blowing i think yeah definitely mm. i think they're a bit they're more common than they're letting on because they're a bit worried about recreational fishing damaging numbers i think a lot of the the shark fishing guys have kind of accidentally uh right. caught them kind of inverted comma <laughs> forget i'm doing podcasts people won't be able to see that just inverted <laughs> yes, it's got um, things up. but um they catch the odd one by by mistake and whatever but they are mm. just incredible creatures mm. well look lizzie it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you so just thanks for taking the time to to do all this 
Yeah, no, thank you for having me. It's been, it's been good. It's good to catch up. We haven't yeah. spoken for ages. <laughs> no, exactly. And yeah, I'll, I'll see you at some point, I'm sure. Alrighty. Thank you. Her passion absolutely shines through. You can tell that when you talk to her. And Lizzie is quite obviously very busy. Busy Lizzie with all the sort of stuff that she's doing off her own back with personal projects and also all the exciting things that she's got coming up. Now, that brings me on to Nature Reserve of the Week. And I thought, well, I better pick a, a Welsh one. So I've not actually been to this reserve, but I hear good things about it. It's Cors Carron Nature Reserve. And it's a raised bog in Cardigan. Cardigan? That doesn't look right. I can't read very well. I'm, I'm, I'm dyslexic and Welsh doesn't, doesn't really um, work for me half the time. Cardigan, Wales? I want to say Cardigan. I think that sounds familiar, but that doesn't look like Cardigan. I'm spending too much time on that. Anyway, it's in mid-Wales, and cause is the Welsh word uh, for bog, basically. So it's no surprise that it's a large kind of boggy area. It's maintained by Natural Resource Wales, and it was formed over 12,000 years ago at the end of the last glacial period. A raised bog of this type develops from a lake or flat marshy area over either non-acidic or acidic substrates. Over centuries, there is a progression from open lake to marsh and then to fen as silt or peat fill up the lake. Now, that creates a very unique and rare habitat, but it also means that there's scope for a huge amount of life. And birds of prey really like this area to hunt. So you've got things like buzzard, peregrine falcons, merlin, sparrowhawk, hen harrier, and there are rare sightings of Montague's Harrier as well. And one of the kind of emblems of Wales, of course, the red kite, is seen here as well. Now, the wetland attracts a variety of wildfowl, such as teal, curlew, water rail snipe, red grouse, tree pipits, grasshopper warbler, and windchat can be seen in some of the more dry areas also, as well as common red star and willow warbler, both of which nest in the willow scrub. Now, in terms of accessibility, it has a boardwalk for you to follow. So walking over the bog is much easier. There's also seating along it and hides to view the wildlife with a car park and toilets as well. So it's got all the basic uh, facilities for you. So if you are in mid Wales, this is a reserve that is well worth checking out. And it is something that I very much need to do. I need to see more of Wales because... I've only been to a snippet of, of nature reserves there and I should really kind of broaden my horizon. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. This has been the Bearded Tits podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I will catch you in the next one. Cheers. <laughs>